football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. How's it going, Jordan? Good to see you, man. Uh, all right, let's warm things up as we tend to do here on this podcast with our pregame topic. And we just got done watching a couple of memorable NBA playoff games, including game one of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Heat and Celtics, which featured an instant classic of a blocked shot, courtesy Bam Adebayo, against Jason Tatum. Uh, it is one of the all-timers for sure, considering the stakes, the circumstances, the moment. Uh, it was pretty unreal. Uh, it will be indelibly etched, I think, in the history of the NBA, particularly if Miami goes on to win this series. But it got me thinking to warm things up. Give me your list of the most memorable blocks in hoops history. Yeah, there's so many, right? Man, that what, what a block that Bam Adebayo stuff was. Uh, I, I got some. Uh, the Tayshaun Prince block uh, in Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers. Uh, what was that, like 2004? Was it? I, I think that's yeah, the Yeah, chasing down the, Reggie Miller. Chasing down Reggie Miller. The crazy part of that one, it came with 18 seconds left. And the game was 69-67 Detroit. 18 seconds left in the game. Boy, do I not miss the early 2000s basketball. <laughs> uh, just some other, like, sort of off-the-wall, like the Nate Robinson block on Yao Ming. Do you remember that? I think it was oh, at yeah. the Garden when he was with the Knicks. Uh, just ridiculous. Because I know you've got some, so I don't want to steal your thunder. The Chris block, Chris Bosh block sort of always stands out to me at the end of game six against your Spurs after the Ray Allen shot. Uh, which would guarantee be a foul the way that they officiate shooters these days. Uh, but it wasn't back in 2013. Uh, and then bless his soul, Charles Smith, for the Knicks in the 93 Eastern Conference Finals against the Bulls. But they blocked him like four times. Yeah. He, he keeps trying to shoot it. And they were all – what were they up? 2-0 in that series, too, and they end up blowing it. They lose four straight to the Bulls as they go to uh, their third championship in a row. So, yeah, uh, I feel for you, Charles Smith. We're still remembering this, you know, 27 years later. Yeah, I like that. That was almost a, a collective nomination for the Charles Smith moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the greatest block of all time, in my opinion, because of the circumstances, NBA Finals, Game 7, it's LeBron chasing down Andre Iguodala, right, and pinning him against the glass. I think that has to be number one. This BAM block, though, because Tatum basically had the ball, like, in the rim on a dunk. And it's not like you've seen some of those block dunks where guys maybe don't necessarily get high enough when you look at the replay. Like, oh, I don't know if, if, if he would have even been able to throw it down. This one was Tatum was going to hammer that. And Bam basically picked it out of the rim. It was wild. So that's up there. And then I got a couple with Hawaii ties. Aaron Galloway, the helicopter, that block on the baseline of that jump shooting Kansas forward at the Stan Sheriff Center and Hawaii's famous upset of Kansas back in the day. Uh, and then there was another UH block, Tony Akpon, and shouts to him and aloha to he, he and his family losing their home in the Southern Oregon fires. But, uh, man, it got me actually thinking about Tony Akpon, the basketball and football player at UH, and he had a pretty incredible moment, the chase down block against future NBA player David West of Xavier in the NCAA tournament in 2002. Hawaii would lose the game, but uh, Akpon got the spank, and that was pretty good. So, uh, yeah, that's my list. 
This is another episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And our guest today, a good guy, friend of certainly the show, and a guy who is just a volleyball aficionado in every way, Eric Shoji. Yes, last name Shoji comes from that wonderful volleyball family. A bronze medalist libero for Team USA at the Rio Olympics in 2016, playing alongside his brother Kavika, who was a setter on that team, as well as another Hawaii guy, Kamehameha grad Micah Christensen, who was the starting setter. Uh, Plus, Eric was a national champ along with Kavika and a slew of other Hawaii guys at Stanford. Stanford now defunct, I guess you could say, at least for the moment as far as a men's volleyball program, which is kind of crazy, and we'll talk to Eric about that. But he is currently in Russia. Yes, we connect with him from Russia playing professionally over there, one of the few human beings on the planet playing indoor team volleyball at the moment. It's, it's amazing uh, with technology, right? Uh, he had spent like five months here in Hawaii, and uh, once, he, once we get to connect with him, it's, it's when he's in Moscow or just outside of Moscow. Uh, so, Eric, one of the fun guys to talk to in what is just a weird time, right? And it, it, good for him that he's back playing. Uh, and uh, we look forward to big things. He, he's looking at a potentially big year ahead with the Olympics being pushed back 12 months. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be a busy time for him, so we're happy that he makes some time for us here on the show that's coming up in just a little bit. But it is game time, and we start in the NBA because aside from that game one of the Eastern Conference Finals, we had a game seven in the Western Conference Semifinals in a very improbable result. The Denver Nuggets did it again. In game seven, they knocked off the Clippers, who were my favorite to win the title, many other people's favorites to win the NBA championship. And Denver, as they did in game five, as they did in game six, they come from behind and they clobber the Clippers left no doubt 104-89 you had a triple double performance of a monstrous proportion including 22 rebounds for Nikola Jokic you had a 40 burger courtesy Jamal Murray uh, and the Nuggets just made the Clippers look silly and the Nuggets are the first team ever to come back from being down 3-1 in two different postseason series in the same year they did it against the Utah Jazz Uh, let's start there with the Nuggets how impressive was this I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And and so much credit has to go to the Nuggets. Like Nikola Jokic was the best player in that series. His passing is just mesmerizing. Mesmerizing. I could watch it all day, right? He nearly goes 20-20 on the triple-double with the 19 rebounds, just controlling that. And a series with Kawhi Leonard, multiple-time finals MVP, and Paul George, the perennial all-star. You know, Lou Williams, sixth man of the year, Montrezl Harris, sixth man. Like, he was the best player, especially over those last three games. And that's even considering the be- his teammate, right, Jamal Murray, who goes for 40 again. It's just become happenstance that he does these elimination games where he's just putting up huge numbers. 40 on 26 shots. Like, he was incredibly efficient. Six of 13 from beyond the arc. It is amazing. And the other crazy thing about this, I had totally forgotten. Like, throughout these last two rounds, um, CJ McCollum tweeted this out actually they're without Will Barton like one of their key guys who, who hurt right. the knee and so they're they're doing this with guys like Monte Morris and Dory Craig right and they're making huge shots because guess what Nikolai Jokic and Jamal Murray the way they run that pick and roll and they pass out of that double team are making perfect reads the guys are getting beautiful looks uh, and they're knocking down shots they are they are really impressive in just how they play team basketball uh, and then you couple that with the Clippers quite candidly just coming up short in the biggest moment over the last three games down the stretch and and you got yourself another 3-1 comeback. 
And I think, unfortunately, that's the way of things, right? In a situation like this, rather than focus the attention on the incredible accomplishment of the Denver Nuggets, a lot of the speculation and a lot of the discussion, including right now, is going to be about what went wrong for the Clippers because they were the favorite. And when you look at that star comparison, we mentioned 40 points for Murray, Nikola Jokic, 16, 22, and 13 assists. I mean, just crazy. They're plus minus on the floor. Jokic was plus 22. Uh, Jamal Murray was plus 15. And then you look at the Clippers and you have Kawhi Leonard, who was minus 21 in that game, 14 points on six of 22 shooting. Paul George was hitting the side of the backboard. He was minus 20 in this game, 10 points four of 16. And you heard Paul George, Doc Rivers talking about, well, you know, Denver's been a team playing together for a longer period of time. You know, for us, maybe we still have to build some of that chemistry. And it's like, bruh, you were up 3-1. You had double-digit leads in each of the elimination games. I don't think that's about chemistry. Paul George clanging it off the side of the glass is not about chemistry. So it gets you thinking. Do you think there's such a thing as a Clipper curse? Because they are now over in their history in games in which they could have punched a ticket to the conference finals. It's so funny. I was watching a little bit of Highly Questionable, uh, Dan Levitard and the crew, and Bomani Jones, and the, the panel was like, you know, they, they wrote the Rich Clippers obituary, and they basically said, look, the Clippers are probably still going to win, and we're going to erase this entire episode. And Bomani Jones had to, had to interject and say, we've been alive long enough to know that the Clippers winning a game seven, there is no guarantees. I don't care who's playing for him. And it, it's kind of hard to argue now, right? What, what we saw and just the, the way they went out as well, right? It wasn't that they played amazing and the Nuggets just hit one more shot or something like that. Like this, this team was not up to the level of the sum of their parts, right? They, they, they rarely look like that. And, and I, I love Doc Rivers, but a lot of this falls on him, I think, right? They, they just never quite looked in sync. And, and you can talk about the layoff or whatever. You Look, you're up 3-1. You just got to win one of the last three games. Find a way. Uh, and I think everybody shares collective blame. But when you bring in kind of an all-star team, right, like that, it, it, a lot of that's going to fall on the head coach. Uh, and the Clippers, yeah, they've, they've had some teams. They've had some teams. And now twice 3-1 they've gone out of the playoffs. Yeah, and that's a third time for Doc Rivers as a head coach. That is dropping wild. a 3-1 lead. It's only happened 13 times in NBA history. Doc's done it three times. Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. And it just gets you wondering, like, you know, hey, look, the bubble has had an impact here, right? I mean, that game would have been played in Los Angeles, right, at Staples Center. Perhaps it would just be a completely different atmosphere. And so that plays a role for sure. Still, it makes you wonder because Nikola Jokic, he's that dude. Jamal Murray appears to be that deal. Paul George, I got to be honest, he's not that dude. And, and Kawhi Leonard was disappointed today, but I think you know, we've seen enough of a, a body of work from Kawhi Leonard to have confidence that this was more of a fluke than anything else. But we've seen this script before with Paul George, and you just start to think, is that actually a recipe for success the way we all envisioned it? To be. We mentioned that the bubble has had an impact and maybe no team has benefited more from it in the postseason than the Miami Heat. As we switch over to the Eastern Conference Finals Game 1, the Heat outlasting the Celtics in overtime. The game will be noted for Jimmy Butler's clutch shenanigans on the offensive end. Uh, and then that Bam Adebayo swatted the rim on defense. The broader question, though, is does this Game 1 change your perspective on this series? We both had the Celtics going to the NBA Finals. Do you think differently now after this Game 1? Not yet. 
Not yet. I, I thought it was going to be a great series. And we kind of talked a little bit, uh, you know, just back and forth um, before this series started. And, and look, I, I like the, the Celtics to come out of the East before the playoffs started. I still do. I think this is going to be a great series. I think it's going to go deep, potentially seven games. And I think a lot of these games are going to come down to the last couple of minutes. That's how evenly matched they are. That's how tough the Heat are. Nine and one. <laughs> Now in the playoffs, it's incredible. Uh, but I still think the, the Celtics have just a little bit more. Guys who listen to the – they know I really like the Heat, right? We picked them to, to, to beat the, the Bucks last series. I, I think it's going to come down to six, seven games, and I, I think the Celtics just a little bit more. But, I mean, I, it, you flip of the coin probably at this point. So, so, no, it doesn't quite change my outlook just yet. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, we just continue to get – conclusive evidence that the Miami Heat are no joke. Like, they're not to be messed with. They are legit. And I think what shocked me was the fact that, you know, I was expecting the Celtics because they're so good at guarding the three to limit that. Uh, but they didn't necessarily accomplish that. And Hero stepped up and played Hero Ball. What a great last name that is. And he was able to hit clutch shots. Uh, and you just wonder after that calamitous of a moment where you have a would-be go-ahead dunk for Jason Tatum getting denied at the rim by Adebayo. Like, those are the kinds of plays, right? Almost like Kirk Gibson's home run off of Dennis Eckersley uh, in the World Series in 88. And it's like, those are moments. That came in game one, and the A's never recovered. And you wonder, are the Celtics going to be able to recover from the emotional aspect and swing in that game one? And again, Hey, look, the bubble has made an impact because that game one would have been in the garden. And imagine how different some of those late game moments would have felt for some of these lesser experienced and younger Heat players. I don't know. This, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to, I guess, jump off of the Celtics pick yet, but um, I don't know. I'm not feeling quite as confident about it, that's for sure. All right, we switch over to the gridiron week one in the NFL. Uh, we saw all kinds of storylines, right? The unveiling of Tom Brady in Tampa Bay. We didn't have a preseason, so we got our first look at a lot of different teams that had new faces in new places. What was your top storyline of the first week of action? Yeah, you know, it, it's a little bit of the old and the new. The, the, the young quarterbacks, they, they look ready to just take this league over, whether it's Lamar Jackson. Josh Allen played really good on Sunday as well for the Bills. To me, the best guy on Sunday and opening week was Russell Wilson, who's not necessarily a young guy, if you will. He was terrific. But the top storyline to me of all those quarterbacks, Aaron Rodgers. Like, we were writing him off. People were talking about he's too difficult. All these kinds of Packers go out and draft Jordan Love in the first round. And then Rodgers, who you and I as fans in the NFC North, not of Green Bay, uh, have just been tormented by A-Rod for decades now. The dude went out 32 for 44, 364, four touchdowns against the Vikings, who you would think were going to be the top contender to, to the Packers in this opening week. Did it on the road, or this season, I should say, in the North. Did it on the road as well. Um, but yeah, to me, A-Rod, amongst all the talk with all the young quarterbacks, and those are all well-deserved, don't get me wrong. Uh, Lamar Jackson, his passing efficiency, oh my goodness. Uh, but Aaron Rodgers, holding it down for the old guys. Ben Roethlisberger a little bit as well on Monday night, but A-Rod, A-Rod was, he, he's still here, guys. Yeah, I think the veteran quarterbacks for me was kind of the, the headline as well. It was both Rodgers and Ben Roethlisberger, right? Roethlisberger, we weren't very unsure as to what he would look like coming off of the injury last year and the surgery, uh, and he looked 
like Big Ben, right? Just, uh, you know, a bit of a lummox as far as his physical capabilities, but he was still running for first downs and positive yardage and making the, the, the vintage Ben Roethlisberger type of throws. I wanted to ask a question because it was also the unveiling of another veteran quarterback in a new place, and that was Tom Brady in Tampa Bay. Uh, they weren't able to get it done in that game. Uh, and so you had a week one where Bill Belichick, his former coach with a new quarterback, Cam Newton, they get a win against Miami. You have Tom Brady for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They fall to the Saints and don't look particularly great or crisp on offense with the exception of the opening drive of the game. Uh, who is in a better situation, you think, based on what you saw in week number one, Bill or Tom? I think I think it's Belichick, right? The The Patriots, I think, are the best team in that division. And that's considering what Josh Allen and the Bills did. I, if you're asking me now, I think the Patriots win the East again. Uh, they've already defeated the Dolphins. The Jets are a mess. Uh, so it's them or Buffalo, right? And, and if you're telling me that I'm going to pick Cam Newton, Bill Belichick in that defense, or the Bills, who I think over, overachieved a little bit last year, uh, I'm, I'm going with New England. And, and in part because the division, I think, is tougher in the NFC South. What the... Bucks are facing is obviously the Saints, who are going to be without Michael Thomas maybe for a little bit here with the ankle roll. But I think the the Saints are good, obviously. I think the Falcons, even though they lost to the Seahawks, I think the Seahawks could be the best team in the NFC. But I do think the Falcons are going to be pretty solid. And, and I was impressed even in a loss by Carolina. So I just think that division is deeper. And so you're going to be in a, a bit of a slugfest trying to claw your way out and into the postseason, whereas New England's path is better. Uh, and if Cam stays healthy and plays as efficient as he does, they run him a little bit, just dink and dunk. Uh, I think I think Belichick's in a better spot. All right, we switch over to the college game, and this is kind of a weird story that came out this week, but Kenny versus the Pentagon. That's right, Navy head coach, former University of Hawaii quarterback, Ken Niumatololo, issued an apology for comments he made criticizing the Pentagon for de- uh, decisions made regarding the Commander-in-Chief's trophy series. Neil Matalolo expressed frustration over the fact that the Air Force, part of the Mountain West Conference, is being allowed to compete in the round-robin series despite not playing a full-season schedule. Navy is playing an 11-game schedule. Army is playing a 12-game slate. Neil Matalolo apologized, saying that he shouldn't have directed his frustration at the Pentagon, who he basically said made the decision. Uh, but does Kenny have a reason to be upset? I get it. I get it, right? And, and he's walked back a little bit, right? Because I think he knows that uh, maybe he was barking <laughs> slightly up the wrong tree. It, it, it's also not ideal for Air Force, I think. It, it's such long layoffs between games. And sure, you can put all of your attention into those two games, no doubt about it. Uh, but I would love to get a few more games to work out the kinks, right? Because though that, that, that becomes some of the most important games on the schedule for both, well, for really all three of the teams. And, and so I... I get where, where Kenny's coming from. I don't have a ton of sympathy. Like, they're looking at their, their schedule right now. They've, they've got two weeks off before they play Air Force after playing two games against BYU and Tulane. So I'd rather have a little bit of a ramp up than what the Air Force has going in completely cold to start a season. And then the Army game at the end of the season, they have two weeks before that as well, unless they make the AAC championship game, which could be, who knows how that plays out. So it's not like they're at a complete disadvantage, you know, when you come down to it. And I don't know how that all works and contracts and escalators. And if you win the commander in chief and you get bonuses or something like that, I'm not sure, but I, I understand where he's coming from, but I, I think at the end of the day, like, yeah, I don't have a ton of sympathy for, for Navy in the scheduling. I, I don't think it's that unfair. 
Yeah, I mean, the circumstances are the word that's overly used now, unprecedented, right? And, and so Air Force, by virtue of their affiliation with the Mountain West Conference, they don't really have much of a choice here. And so I don't know if they have a lot of options to play a full season. I don't know if they could have just gone out and independently scheduled more games. I'm not sure if that would even be allowed. And so I didn't feel like Air Force was trying to take advantage from like a nefarious type of stance or, or perspective. I just, you know, these are the circumstances, unfortunately, because of this dang COVID thing. And I think at the end of the day, it's probably just not a good idea, no matter what role you're in, no matter who you are, to take on the Pentagon. That just doesn't sound like it's a good move that will bring about a, a, a good result in any instance. There's just too much power uh, and mysteriousness over there. So uh, yeah, I think uh, Kenny did a good thing by walking it back. And who knows, maybe he was told and directed from somebody in a superior position to hurry up and walk it back. All right, so this is also a COVID-related story. Uh, we could be seeing the Diamond Head Classic, an annual college basketball tournament held at the Stan Sheriff Center. We could see it played in Orlando this year. The DHC is one of eight college basketball tournaments that ESPN Events is reportedly moving to the bubble in Orlando. Now, this has not been made official. This is according to reports. But Hawaii, again, is the geographical host of the Diamond Head Classic. And now, if the reports are accurate, they're going to have to travel clear to the other end of the country for what is one of their signature events. So is this a tough break for the Bows, the way you're looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is their marquee preseason event, right? And it used to be the Rainbow Classic, and, and we know that they still try to do an event, and maybe that's got a little more prestige for us here locally. But it's it's the, the tournament where you're playing three games on national television. Uh, you're bringing in uh, you know a pretty solid field year in and year out. Great opportunity, especially at the end of December, right, to springboard into Big West Conference play. So it's great for the program for all kinds of different reasons, especially because you get to stay at home. And you can sleep in your own bed. You don't have to travel to go play these big money games. Now this is the this is his worst case as it gets. You got to fly all the way to Florida potentially, and then come back home right before New Year's, and then jump right into Big West Conference play if things work out as they normally do. Yeah, that is rough. That is rough for Rockinots guys. Hopefully they can figure something out. But this really seems to be what it's going to be, right? When it comes to the Diamond Head Classic, the Maui Invitational is reportedly going to be played at the Harris Cherokee Center in Asheville, North Carolina. That doesn't make any sense, but nothing else does in 2020. Uh, the Battle for Atlantis, which usually takes place down in the Bahamas, is reportedly going to be played at the Sanford Pentagon, the, another Pentagon reference in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Oh, yeah. Like, can you imagine if the recruiting pitch was, hey, hey, you come sign with us. You're going to go to Honolulu or you're going to go to Lahaina or you're going to go to the Bahamas. You know what? Sorry, guys. We're actually going to have to rebook you and we're going to Sioux Falls <laughs> in the middle of November. Yeah, and there's going to be no crowds at these events you would anticipate. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real mess, man. This is going to be a college basketball season, like just about every other sport that we've seen restart that is going to be almost unrecognizable. Yeah, nothing says Atlantis like Sioux Falls, that's for sure. All right, time now for our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and it is our interview and conversation with Eric Shoji. And so let's go ahead and, uh, without further ado, uh, introduce Eric. Hey, what's up, Eric? How you been? You are in Russia at the moment, so uh, thankfully technology allows us to connect here. Uh, how's life treating you at the moment? Oh, well, thanks for having me, guys. Life is pretty good. You know, it's nice being back overseas and playing volleyball and um, kind of getting past this summer, which was uh, insane, as we all know. But yeah, life is good. 
Yeah, I mean, things have taken a bit of a detour, really, for all of humanity, but certainly for you, you're one of the few human beings on the planet playing volleyball right now, but there was an anticipation that you were going to be playing volleyball for the national team in the Olympics, and you had all of these possibilities, uh, but you are at least playing the game. So how do uh, yeah. you, how have you absorbed uh, this, this, this pretty crazy, turbulent time? Well... I guess I'll start in March, right? I mean, I was in Russia in March when COVID kind of took over. And it was around the same time that the Olympics got postponed. So it was just like this blur of events happening. And personally, I, I wasn't paying attention to the Olympics because I was trying to get out of Russia and back into the States. So that was more stressful than the Olympics, you know, breaking that whole news story. So It's been crazy. I mean, I was in Hawaii for five months, which, which hasn't happened since high school. Um, luckily enough, you know, I found some time in a gym to practice with my brother and Michael Christensen and a couple other guys. So it's nice to be back, um, getting to do what I love to do in Russia, getting paid to play volleyball, and I'm just happy to be back competing. What is the playing experience like under these circumstances in, you know, albeit a familiar location in a foreign country? What, what is that experience like? You know, it's a little bit different. I'm, I'm going to say that Russia is almost past the quarantine stage. They are back to normal life for the most part. But as far as what my team is doing, you know, we are very diligent with hand sanitizer. Um, our coaches are wearing masks. We're getting tested once a week. And when we are playing opponents, we're not shaking hands. So there's no, you know, pre-match, post-match handshake. Um, now, does that mean we're not seeing them in a hotel? No, because we are seeing them. But um, there's a couple of rules in place, which I guess are a little bit more comforting. Um, but the volleyball is normal, which is, which is good. Well, you got to help me with the pronunciation of the team name uh, for which you play. Uh, while you also explain, uh, you were kind of telling us before we started recording this, uh, that you guys are off to a pretty phenomenal start, all things considered. Yeah, so the team I play for is Fakel Vali Novi Urengoy. Um, Fakel is torch in Russian. And Novi Urengoy is the city in central Russia, very north. Um, I actually play about 10 miles from an arctic circle that's where the city is and i'm on a very unique unique team fakoval is very interesting i live close to moscow which is a three and a half hour flight from this city which i call on the north pole uh in the arctic circle close to it at least so basically i'm i'm doing a los angeles chicago flight every every home game so those are our home games which is which is very interesting and unique um but yeah we we've started our season we're two and two which is not bad, not great, obviously. Um, it's the cup, which is separate from the Russian championship. But it's interesting because a team actually came down with COVID last week that we played against, who I was also in a hotel with, who I was also in an elevator with. Um, and the tournament has been canceled now. So we're not sure what's going on. I think this year is going to be up in there, like completely a bunch of these games and tournaments. But... You know, four games in five days was interesting, but I'm obviously just happy to be back playing. Yeah, Eric, can you uh, elaborate a little bit? So the team trains outside of Moscow and then goes to this other town in, in central Russia for, for the games? What, 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 why is that, I guess? So what I've kind of figured out, some people trying to explain to me, is that this city that we play at, Novi Urengoy, um, I'll, I'll send you guys 
where it is after this, but it's just so far north and cold and isolated. And it's not really, it's like a working city. So a lot of people work there for, I don't know, a month out of the year and then they leave and then a month and then they, so it's back and forth. So not a lot of people live there, but there's a lot of money in the gas and the oil companies. So someone was like, I want a team here. And obviously the Russian league agreed, but they don't want us living there. It's just, it wouldn't be great for us to live there. They wouldn't attract a lot of players. So I live outside of Moscow, pretty good life. I actually lived in Moscow in the sea last year. We moved due to COVID, but so if we play on a Saturday in Novi Udengoy, I'm, I'm busing up to the airport on a Thursday morning, getting to Novi Udengoy Thursday afternoon, playing Saturday and flying back on a Sunday. So I'm pretty much four, four days in this city where, I'm, where I am now and then three days in the other city. It's fascinating. I mean, I am more used to it. I think every time I explain it to someone, they're like, what, why, who, where, when? <laughs> um, I was very nervous about it when I signed with this team three years ago, but it's something I'm obviously more used to now. Yeah, I kind of wanted to go back as well. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned in March and you're, you're kind of worried about just getting out of the country. Uh, and then you sort of flip that around and figure out how to get back into the country. Uh, I believe just, you know, less than a month ago uh, yeah. that you went back to Russia. What, what was all of that like, just the process and, and getting your mind around and, and finding your way? You know, it's a, it's a long way from Honolulu. Absolutely. It's a, it's a long way. Um, I think back in March, it was just so many uncertainties with the whole situation. And also I'll, I'll just say that Russia, we played longer than every other league did. So I was probably the last American player playing volleyball at that point. And I just remember the season being canceled, shut down. You can go home, Eric, in like a day happening. So borders were shutting down. Uh, Russian flights were getting canceled. I was just stressed trying to get home. And then coming back here, you know, I'm not supposed to actually be here. I think the visa process was pretty complicated this time. Normally it takes about a week or two. This one was about a month. Just figuring out like why I was getting a visa and who was letting me in and like if they were gonna let me in at passport control. So it's been a lot. Um, it all worked out. I'm here and, and back playing. So I guess it's, it went well. <laughs> 31 years old, is that, is that where you're, uh, is that accurate age depiction for you? <laughs> I am 31. I just turned 31 a couple weeks ago. <laughs> hey, don't be ashamed of it, all right? For those of us I, who I are in our 40s, like we don't want to hear like the it. guys in their early 30s, you know, being all sad about it. Um, <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not sad about it. I'm not sad about it. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is remarkable because, you know, this volleyball journey has taken you around the world quite literally. And, and I may be leaving out some locations, but you've played professionally, if I'm not mistaken, in Germany, Austria. Italy for a time uh you know yeah what would be maybe the 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 stop that has stood out the most the place that you were sort of most thankful to have uh, at least had some some volleyball time Ooh. you know what no I feel this is this is going to sound like a cop-out but I do feel like every place I've been has been a great step in my career um maybe excluding one but I'm not going to say where it was <laughs> But I feel fortunate, like I started on the last team in Germany, like the last place team. And I just, I feel like I've moved up since then. I've been super fortunate and I guess played well enough and been on the national team. So um, I've really enjoyed my career, just every step of the way. I think if I were to like go back and live in a city, it would be Berlin, Germany. It's, it's an incredible city and one that felt very, very normal for me to live in. Um, I guess living in like, I also lived in Siberia, like, 
uh, central to more eastern Russia, like freezing cold. Um, I've lived in Moscow, like nobody lives in Moscow. So I don't know, I feel lucky and I've, I've been challenged a lot, which is great. But um, I don't know, I'm just excited about my career. I think it's been great. And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm not done. So I'm not stopping yet. So I'm excited it, it, to see where it goes. It sure doesn't seem like you are. And you're still playing the libero position, which is such a physically demanding position, especially at those elite levels of international volleyball. Being that you've been playing for a pretty long period of time now professionally, how, how do you maintain? How, how have you maintained the uh, physical capability uh, without any noticeable drop-off to this point in your career? Yeah, well, I think it, it comes down to all the things that we think we need to do, we ended up doing. Like, when I'm 21, I'm like, I'm not going to stretch or I'm not going to ice bath because I don't want to. I don't feel like I need to. Even though in the back of my mind, I'm like, I probably need to. Um, all of those things are now, like, very, very important. Recovery, stretching, eating right. I don't have a perfect diet, but, like, doing the right things to fuel for the games. I think basically everything that an athlete knows they need to be doing you have to do like once you start getting a little bit older um i also think the mental part is huge like i find that if i'm not engaged mentally at practice that my body also like doesn't warm up as well so there's a great combination of that but i don't know just a lot of recovery and doing exactly what i i already knew what i need to be doing so yeah and of course um a little over uh, or maybe a little less than a year from now the olympics hopefully going to take place after being pushed back you know what yeah. what did what did that sort of do for you know your planning the fact that it got postponed that it was delayed um and, and how do you sort of ramp things back up uh what's that path look like going forward to to get mm. to tokyo next year yeah well it's an interesting thing i think we look at the olympics in as in quads so it's a four-year process after every olympics um Obviously, we were super looking forward to it as a team and individually and as a family, um, trying to make our second Olympics, me and my brother. I think our team itself, we had some injuries that wouldn't have been great heading into this year. So I think that helped. The, the, actually, the postponement helped our team a little bit. And as far as planning, I almost wanted to take a year off, actually, after the Olympics. So this season, currently, I was almost like, oh, maybe I'll take a break, like mentally two Olympics, eight years, um, take a break. You know, I, I can get back into it after that. Unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, I have this contract, so I'm back at it. Um, and all the, the other half of the postponement is that the next quad is only three years. So a lot of athletes are like, oh, that seems a lot shorter than four years for some reason. Or maybe an athlete that's older, older like me, is like, oh, I can do another three years. So there's some interesting things that happened with the postponement. I think overall it was a positive for our team and I'm looking forward to getting back with the group next summer. I was missing them so much this year. Yeah. Was there sort of communicate? You mentioned uh, to us that, you know, that you were working out on Oahu with your brother, Kavika, uh, Micah Christensen, also a Hawaii native. Uh, what's the communication like amongst the group of, of, national team players as I'd imagine you guys are kind of spread out all over the place yeah I mean we're super spread out I mean there's guys in Germany Poland Italy France I'm the only one in Russia holding it down here um you know we'll have team meetings every once in a while they kind of fell off I think our guys were pretty happy with our time at home and spending it with family and we just we weren't in a place to have meetings all the time and that was just 
you know, our team vibe and it's fine because we're great friends. Um, I know myself, I text a bunch of the guys daily. So we're a close team. I don't think this time off is going to hurt the team chemistry at all. And if anything, I think it made us, made us stronger just because we had to communicate outside of the court. We're talking with Eric Shoji. I just kind of want to talk about the evolution of, of the game, the evolution of the sport in general, right? Where you have like bigger players and harder hitters and bigger swingers. Uh, but the libero position, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, it, it, as we mentioned, it's, it's so sort of demanding in that way. What has been your experience as, frankly, one of the best liberos we've ever seen? Uh, what has been your experience in, in kind of keeping up with that? That's a great question. I think with the evolution of speed and physicalness in our sport, I think comes the evolution of certain techniques and mindsets. I'm someone that has worked very, very hard on technique and the way I play the game. And there are, there's minor changes that you have to make with certain players or certain speeds or certain teams. And I think the best liberos do that at a high level. No matter what's coming at you, I think consistency is the key. You know, I think perfection is just out of the picture as a libero at this point with, with what's happening. I've had to sort of change my mindset from maybe in college where I felt like I could pass every ball perfect to, you know, I'm going to get aced probably this match. It's probably going to happen just based on what, who I'm looking at or across the court. So a couple of mindset shifts and a couple of technical changes that you're going to have to make, but it's rough. I mean, there's some hitters and servers out there that honestly are just terrifying. I mean, I'm scared on a daily basis at practice with some of my players. So yeah, it's pretty physical out there. Are the wheels always turning? Like how much of it, because I look at that, your reaction time and some of the things that seem to occur instinctively. You had that famous uh, collegiate highlight where you had the kick save and there have just been all these other ones in your professional career that have gone viral of you laying out and just uh, those, those very uh, nanosecond quick decisions that you have to make. Are the wheels turning or is it more about clearing your mind? Well, I think it's a mix. I think... Um... Practice is the time where I like to think and analyze and um, understand what kind of technique I'm using and make, making certain adjustments. I think when I get to the game, I understand that I've put in so much work on the practice court with technique and thinking and some other aspects of the game that I try to empty, like you said, my mind from those things when it comes to the game and let my instincts and natural ability, ability to take, take over. Um, are there points in the match where I'm like, fix your technique now. Yes. But that is definitely less so than what's on the practice court. So I would say a lot of it is natural and an instinctive and just purely reaction. It's sort of on that topic, Erica, just, just the evolution and, you know, here, at least in the States, I think we're, we're mostly, especially in Hawaii, just mostly exposed to the collegiate game and, and Kanoa can kind of touch on this too, I would think, but it, it seems like in the last several years, ball control rallies are longer in the men's game where for a time you would see it, it was just, you know, one pass and, and that was it. Um, is that reflective of what you're seeing professionally or experiencing professionally uh, at, at such a high level there? Or is that more of a, just kind of how the college game has developed? No, I definitely think there's um, been more rallies. I think maybe within the last 10 years, I'm not exactly sure. I think one servers are getting better. So we're a lot, we're out, out of system more often, meaning we're not like getting a perfect pass to the setter. 
Um, I think blockers are getting better and bigger and stronger. And I think also defenders are getting better. We're figuring out ways to get our body in front of the ball and, and dig it. So I think those three aspects have really helped increase the amount of rallies in our sport. I think what's frustrating is that fans see service errors only and they're like, oh, men's volleyball doesn't have rallies. And that kind of takes away from everything else in our game. So um, yeah, I think there's been an increase in rallies due to some of those factors for sure. Yeah, it's been exciting to watch for sure. I think from a fan standpoint and on the, the collegiate volleyball note, of course, we wanted to ask you about uh, your alma mater, Stanford, uh, you know, so successful. And then of course, I think surprising a whole lot of people by saying that they were going to discontinue the men's volleyball program among a whole other bunch of programs there in, yeah. in Palo Alto. Um, I know the alumni have been very, very vocal and organized uh, in trying to save the program, but uh, what was what was your initial reaction and, and kind of where are we at now? Oh, I mean, it was absolutely devastating. I woke up one day in Hawaii, great morning, sunshine out to about 30 texts of just like bad news and everyone just emotional and figuring out what we can do. So it was tough. I mean, I'm not someone that gets emotional all the time, but it was just like this feeling of devastation for, I mean, our program as alumni, but also for the coaches, the athletes and the future athletes, it was just like heartbreaking for those kids. So, you know, we've been fighting. I know the team has had a lot of meetings with administration, um, some of our alumni who are a little bit more, more, I guess, a little bit older and well-known and better public speakers than maybe me, for example. But yeah, we've been putting in a lot of work trying to figure out how to raise money or what to raise money for. I currently don't exactly have an update. We haven't gotten one in a while, but I'll be sure to post it on social media when I do. I think what made it so shocking for everybody is, is especially in an era where the collegiate game has, there has been a, a very overt effort to try to, as they say, grow the game into different areas of the country. And it's like, if Stanford, even if they're utilizing COVID as kind of the, the shade uh, provided to be able to pull off this move, uh, if Stanford has a justification in trying to uh, ice out that program, even for a temporary amount of time, it's like, you know, that to me, the, the, it leads to a greater concern of how do you then grow the game? How can you, how, how can that campaign even have legs to carry some of that if Stanford of all programs and institutions, you, you know, does not value it in that way. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, Stanford, the biggest athletic program in the nation, perhaps, and probably the most successful, I will claim at least. Um, yeah, I mean, it's shocking that we had to get rid of 11 sports and men's volleyball being one of those, but, and it's been a huge discussion of volleyball moving forward, but then you look at, a program like USC, another huge program, a Penn State, you know, Ohio State, you know, those are the programs that I personally looked at where huge athletic programs, huge budgets, men's volleyball, not the highest on the totem pole there. I mean, if Stanford can cut it, what, me, what makes, you know, Penn State not keep the program as well? So, you know, I think we're not sure exactly what's going to happen, but unfortunately, I can see those things happening. And if that happens, then our sport kind of just goes off the rail all the way from grassroots to, to the Olympic level. So I think this decision was absolutely uninformed by Stanford. I think they did not see the growth of the game. The fact that we've um, 
increased amount of D1 programs by a lot, including some historically black colleges, which is huge in our sport and in the nation. So yeah, it just was really unfortunate. And I'm, I'm just hoping for something better to um, happen in the future. Yeah, well said for sure. Um, let's shift to, to how you got here. Um, you are from a family that is considered volleyball royalty, <laughs> right? Um, how, how much was your dad and your mom, how much were they involved in your volleyball development? I mean, the fact that, you know, he has three kids, you know, the daughter's pretty darn good at the sport, and then his two sons become Olympians in the sport. Like, you know, something was happening in that household. What was it? Um, I think what happened was that I was forced to go to the gym every day after school and my only entertainment was volleyball. Um, I mean, long story short, no, I mean, I think I was just, Kavik and I and my sister who will appreciate you saying she's pretty darn good at volleyball. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were just surrounded by the game, you know, from a young age. I mean, you know, uh, I was just in the, in the practice gym constantly and watching volleyball and fortunately surrounded by some pretty darn good players and watched what they did, copied what they did and just grew up with it. So um, to be honest, I'm a very like average human when it comes to like physical ability and like my, how tall I am and how high I jump. So I think me being around the game from a really, really young age was just super important and in my development and obviously with Kavika as well. Well, so what what does it mean to you or how does it strike you then when you have off the block naming the National Libero of the Year Award after you, Eric Shojian, and you're talked about in, in a way that's very superlative. It's, it's hyperbolic where people say, hey, look, he's probably the best libero that, you know, we've ever had in the United States. I mean, that is an, an actual conversation. What how does that then strike you at? Just seeing your reaction as I talk about it, it seems as though yeah. you're, uh, you're a bit hesitant about it. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a nice honor to have for sure. And obviously I'm going to take the award versus not taking it. You know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a nice thing to be named after, but it's, I didn't think I was old enough to get it, <laughs> but I mean, I'll take it. But also, I mean, I don't know. What was your question? I was flustered by like all the compliments. I couldn't even like, I couldn't think. <laughs> that, that's how comfortable you are with the compliments. No, it's just, you know, I think yeah. you, just how that, how that strikes you when you hear people talk about that. And, and it's not something that we're just coming up with here for the sake of the podcast. I mean, people talk about you in that high of a regard. And so I guess just how you react to that. And it, it's interesting because it, this seems to be a very sort of genuine real time reaction of 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 like discomfort to a degree like you're just not maybe wired that way to, to think about those kinds of things yeah I mean again like I said it's nice I think what people like hold other athletes in such high esteem I, I'm just a very normal person like you guys know I'm very normal like I text you when there's bad challenges during the Wahine <laughs> game so it's like <laughs> I don't know to have the award is nice but like I don't know. I've worked really very hard in my career to be a great volleyball player. So it's nice to have that recognition, but like, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable with like talking, talking about it, but thank you. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is terrific. It, it, it's just kind of curious too, Eric. I mean, cause because volleyball seemed like the natural thing, right? I mean, just, just knowing your, your background, but yeah. uh, you know, you were a state champion doubles tennis player in high school. Your brother was co-state player of the year in basketball at Iolani. 
you know, so you guys were multi-sport athletes, and, and was that uh, very, very purposeful, you think, uh, on your parents' part, or, or was it a little bit of an outlet, and, you know, it seems like it was, uh, you know, beneficial for you guys to, you know, be these multi-sport guys. Yeah, well, first I'll say I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of multi-sport athletes. I think it's so helpful and was huge in my development, Kiko's development, Micah Christensen, who was also a state basketball player of the year. Um, I think every single one on the national team played a sport growing up besides volleyball. So to see people specialize in volleyball so early to me is like mind-blowing. I understand that people have to do it these days, but it's hard to watch sometimes, like people not being able to play other sports that they love. Um, I think it was very purposeful of my parents to put us in other sports. I think if my if my dad had his way, I would have been a, a baseball player. I think both of you probably know that he loves baseball and used to play it. Um, unfortunately for him, I didn't like baseballs being thrown at me. So I quit when I was 12. But um, yeah, Kavika and I played a lot of sports. Kavika played basketball and golf in high school and I played tennis. And it was just, I think growing, like as we got older, it was an outlet. It was more of like the fun sport but huge in our development in so many ways. I find it kind of ironic that you're saying you don't uh, like having baseballs thrown at you, but 70 mile an hour volleyballs and tennis balls, that's, that's no problem. That's fine, right? Yeah, exactly. I think I just didn't want to play baseball after a while. <laughs> and that was just my excuse, like, dad, I don't like this. Um, but yeah, now I get hit by balls, by volleyballs for a living, which is weird also. Well, when you talk about loving volleyball, I mean, that's evident. You, you mentioned, you know, we, we text sometimes during <laughs> matches or after matches. Uh, you have this, this incredible ability. You're like the Joe Lenardi of, of volleyball, where you're able to figure out, like, certain bracketology uh, seedings for tournaments and those kinds of things. I mean, I think you're going to be playing for a long time here. But what do you see kind of beyond that when it is time to say, all right, I think maybe I've played libero for the last time. What's, what's the next step? Because I imagine you're still going to want to be involved with the game, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Like I'm so nerdy and like love volleyball <laughs> that it can't, I can't leave it alone. Um, but no, I'm, I'm super interested in coaching. I, I like to coach on my off time. I like to teach. I like to help kids out and help them improve in volleyball. So I think the natural step for me, um, considering that like all of my Stanford credits have now expired because I'm 31 years old <laughs> to go to medical school, which was like my dream back in the day. Um, yeah, would be going to coaching. I love coaching. I love teaching kids and um, I have, I mean, as much as I was around college volleyball, I don't know what it's like to coach college volleyball, like the ins and outs of it. So it'll be interesting for me to like get in the door and then see how it is. And then hopefully I love it and then keep moving forward. Do you envision that taking place at least to start in Hawaii? Or is that something that you could see yourself venturing into anywhere around the globe or country? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty open. I, like I mentioned earlier, I've lived like all over Europe and in Russia. So I feel like I could live anywhere. Like I'm not scared to live anywhere. But yeah, I, I love the Wagmina program. I love Hawaii volleyball. So if I were to end up there, it'd be, it'd be, it would be great. Unfortunately, that's like one job in the entire nation. So who knows? Like I'm just, I'm honestly, right now, especially I'm one day at a time. This is an ideal world. Like I can't speak to the coaches now because I love those people. But, like, if I were to coach with my brother at UH, like, I don't know. That would be ideal. You know, that would be amazing. That would be pretty amazing. Uh, it is amazing that you're 
playing the game of volleyball right now at a time where there are yes. just so few people that are. So, uh, and it's also amazing that you're uh, willing to join us uh, this late oh, in the day no over there and, and uh, under these circumstances. So, uh, Eric, thanks so much, man. Great talking with you. Been wanting to do so for a long time. Yes. And, uh, and best of luck the rest of the way. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Thanks once again to Eric Shoji for joining us. And I think we got off the, the line with him at just the right time because it was starting to break up. And I don't know about the internet connection over there just outside of Moscow, but uh, let's uh, hit up our post game. And it's time now for our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information all right let's get it going what is your best here for this episode of the podcast Jordan. Yeah, my best. I'm going to go two for one. Uh, Monday night football redemption, if you will. Steven Goskowski, right? Everybody was watching last night. He misses four kicks, three field goals, a BAT, uh, and then he kicks the game winner. So you got to feel good for him. The dude's been in the league for so long, right? He's got a number of Super Bowl rings from his time in New England. But my better one is Maria Taylor, who I thought was outstanding, is terrific for ESPN uh, in all that she does, whether it's a studio host uh, for the NBA, uh, whether it's for college basketball, college football as a sideline reporter. She was the Monday Night Football sideline reporter in New York for the Steelers and the Jets. Uh, and some idiot at 670, the score in Chicago, which I'm actually pretty familiar with as a radio station, just being a Chicago sports fan, uh, tweeted something that was just completely inappropriate. We don't even get to get into it. The dude got fired, Dan McNew. He's an idiot. Uh, and Maria Taylor just kind of clapped back and called him Danny Dearest and just got all the, the accolades uh, and, and um, applause from everybody because it was well-deserved and there was nothing wrong with anything she did appearance-wise or performance-wise. She was, she was terrific. So uh, good for you, Maria Taylor, for taking it in stride and putting that guy in his place. Yeah, I totally agree with you. She is incredible. And, and the comment made about her appearance or like what she was wearing, and it's just, uh, it, it, it couldn't be more off the mark, right? Uh, because she is the epitome of professionalism. Very rarely, if ever, makes a mistake. Like she's just really, really good uh, and very likable. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for her that she had that moment to clap back. Uh, and I think seeing the support that she got from some of her colleagues on air, I think has meant a lot as well. All right, my best, Michael O'Keefe. You know him? He's the actor who played Noonan in Caddyshack. Uh, well, we were talking about Caddyshack recently on one of the previous episodes of the podcast because it's celebrating its 40th year of existence, uh, one of the classic movies. Uh, but anyway, Michael O'Keefe actually held the bag, right? He played a caddy in the movie, and he held the bag for real for Danny Balin for a pair of practice rounds at Winged Foot this week, which is the site of the U.S. Open. Apparently, O'Keefe took to Facebook, solicited some pro, was asking if any of the pros would let him caddy uh, for them at the course this week, and Balin was the taker. O'Keefe even wore a Bushwood Country Club hat, which was the country club from the movie as an added touch. Uh, I thought that that was pretty cool, pretty funny. Apparently, he lives close to Wingfoot, so that's uh, why he wanted to be a part of it. And uh, yeah, celebrating 40 years of Caddyshack, uh, it works out quite nicely. This is great. I, I love it. Kudos as well to Danny Balin for, uh, for signing up, right? Uh, he was the one guy that uh, took the offer from Noonan, who's, I got to say, man, Noonan's looking a little old these days, but it was cool to see him in the Bushwood hat. I love that. Hey, man, the movie's been around for four decades, so what do you expect, man? Noonan Crazy. can't stay young forever. Uh, all right, what about your worst? 
Yeah, my worst. Uh, also kind of a two-for-one, but uh, <laughs> college football coaches, right? They're, they're not necessarily the ones that are the most eloquent, and they're not going to always say the right things because they're always focused on football. We're going to win. we got to get the W on Saturday. We're going to win and this week. Lincoln Riley last week had put out that uh, Oklahoma was no longer going to disclose their COVID-19 testing data for competitive reasons. Like, for, like they're treating it like injuries. Like it's on the injury report or something. Like, don't you think public health officials should plan accordingly based off of your, off of your data here? Like, isn't this kind of important? It's just, it just makes no sense to me that they would treat this like any other sort of injury. Because on the other side of that token, Coach Orgeron, reigning national champ, Coach O at LSU, uh, his comments yesterday basically saying uh, – he thinks that basically all of his players have already caught COVID. Not all of our players, quote, but most of our players have caught it. I think that hopefully they don't catch it again, and hopefully they're not out for games. Like, what? You think most of your team has it? I guess they're testing the whole herd immunity theory or something there in Baton Rouge. But it's like but most of the LSU football team that won the national championship last year, maybe just, eh, I think they've already got it. Yeah, I think it's a bit shady when they're not sharing the information. I mean, that's kind of a key part of this, right? Like the information is 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 at the heart of how we go about staying safe or, or at least, you know, following the guidelines so that we can make sure that this football thing stays around for an entire season. You have the report, according to numbers released by Texas Tech, uh, just yesterday, 75 players on the football team tested positive for COVID-19, 69 recovered, six cases are active. And so, you know, I mean, if that's under the covers, then what are we doing here, right? We, we are potentially putting people, not just the players themselves, but people that are close to the program, people on the periphery, we're putting them in danger, frankly. And, and, and uh, you know, at the very least, like, let's just be upfront and honest about this stuff so that we can plan accordingly. That's kind of what it's all about. And I would think that football coaches, right, who are usually control freaks and usually make all kinds of decisions based on an array of analytics and information and data, uh, that they would be all for that. <laughs> that just seems so counterintuitive. Uh, that we're going the other way with it in some instances. All right, we got to get to my worst, which is actually more like your best. But uh, my worst is losing a bet to you, Jordan, over the Lions-Bears matchup here in week one. I had to change my Twitter avatar. It's now a Mitch Trubisky pick. It's a Bears logo as well. Uh, this is the most Lions loss ever. They led 23-6 over your Chicago Bears going into the fourth, and my Lions went on to lose. They appeared for a moment that they were going to avoid disaster and this red-hot fourth quarter by Mitch Trubisky on a would-be TD pass from Matt Stafford to DeAndre Swift, but the rookie dropped it in the end zone. Yeah, I went into a depression for a while. Not sure if I'm fully out of it, and now everyone's laughing at me on Twitter. So uh, it's all out there, and that's my worst. You're a good man. Man of his word. <laughs> and uh, a true Lions fan, which, yeah, and I know is rough. So, yeah, I got, Mitch Trubisky looks good on your avatar. I got to say, you know, there's only, what, five more days? You got to keep it up there till next week, Sunday. So, uh, yeah, I am glad I was fully – I had already looked up the uh, the Lions logo. I was going to put, like, Jelani Tavai or something like that, uh, tying a Hawaii guy there. Uh, that was the most Bears-Lions game ever, am I not? Correct? Like, the, the Bears were terrible for three quarters. Mitchell Trubisky was not good. And then he teases you because he throws three perfect passes uh, and leads them down the field and creates that win. And then they, the Bears defense just lets the Lions march down the field and they should have won. And poor DeAndre Swift can't catch the biggest pass of his young pro career here. Like It was the most Bears line. They both tried to lose for the vast majority of that game.
the, the Lions are just a little bit better than the Bears at not being better than the Bears. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Thanks again to Eric Shoji, Jordan. It's been fun. Everyone out there can hit us up on Twitter, at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at TalkSports808. We'll do it again soon, my man. Looking forward to it.